and take out your Bibles for the message tonight to Romans 3, verses 9 through 26. Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. This is going to really set things up for um, the Heidelberg Catechism lessons. We're not going to verse, I'm not going to preach through these verses verse by verse. Instead, I'm going to highlight what's going on in these Lord's days. But first of all, we're going to read Romans 3, 9 through 26. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then turn to pages 9 10 and 11 in the back of the Psalter hymnals. And these are the lessons that we're going to be focusing on. It's Lord's Day 2, Lord's Day 3, and Lord's Day 4. And I'm going to be following through each one of those as the message goes on. So you want to keep your hymnal open to follow along to see what's going on. So, on this tour of the Heidelberg Catechism, we started our tour a couple of weeks ago, and now what we're going to do for three messages is fly at 30,000 feet and look at the view, and then after that, we're going to lower and fly down to more 10,000 feet and look at the view from 10,000 feet. The 30,000-foot view reveals the three-part structure of this Bible study guide. When you page through the catechism, like we talked about two weeks ago, the contents are not unique among the dozens and dozens of catechisms that are out there and that were written at the time of the Reformation, especially. 
uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Sacraments, uh, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. That's what all the catechisms did. But the structure is unique, and that's what we're looking at at 30,000 feet. Sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude. There's not really another catechism that approaches it that way. So, number one, guilt today, which you might think, hey, I, I didn't want to come tonight for a downer of a sermon before the week to come. Sin, guilt, however you put it, yuck. But don't be too quick to judge, because even though this is one, a full one-third of the structure, one of only three sections, it's actually only a small fraction of the total contents. It's three Lord's Days. I've never been a math whiz, but even I can take a calculator, divide three into 52, which is the total number of lessons, and come up with the answer on the calculator. It's 5.7%. So maybe 5.7% of the catechism is a downer, but that's not even how we should be looking at it. And it, tu it turns out that this is a very important first stop to focus on guilt, to focus on sin, to focus, yes, on man's misery, as our translation puts it. We don't want to linger here. We don't want to stay stuck here. And the reality is there have been Christian traditions and Christian individuals who in their lives or in their traditions have made the mistake of that, of staying, staying like stuck and overly obsessed and focused on their sin. We don't want to do that. We don't want to stay stuck here. But it's really important that we spend some time here because what this section does is show us that we all need a Savior. And that's pretty important information. Each one of these Lord's Days, each one of these lessons confirms our need for a Savior. And each one hits that need from a different angle. And that's just what I want to look at tonight. The three lessons, those three different angles. First of all, the first lesson shows we need a Savior because even our very best living falls short of where it needs to be. This section highlights the law, a.k.a. the Ten Commandments. They're summarized here with Jesus' summary of the law, Matthew 22. Now, in our culture, Christians, we, we want to hold up the Ten Commandments, it seems to me, as these ten wonderful, powerful, great principles. We'd like them to be in courthouses, in schools, in, in public places. Uh, we want them to be out there for all to see. And, and the Ten Commandments are a great set of principles. There's no doubt about it. But, but this lesson reminds us that they also show us how great we are not. They're great principles, but they're showing us how great we are not. We're supposed to live this way, but we don't. We fail. And sometimes as believers, you know, we extend this invitation to people to live like Jesus because his way of living is the very best way to live. But the fact is, no one can live like Jesus. No one ever will. We present these as 10 secrets to successful living, 
but everyone who would try it would, will fail. Without the Spirit's work in our heart, we cannot follow them. As one pastor puts it in kind of a helpful way, I think, I mean, you look at our lives, we can't even keep our houses as clean as we'd like them to be. We can't even stick to a budget. We have trouble managing our time. So what makes us think that we can live like Jesus and do everything a holy God requires of us? The catechism says really bluntly that what we actually do and how we actually live is the opposite of the law when it says, I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. It's interesting, the text it uses to teach our guilt in this lesson. It's using one of the most treasured devotional passages in all of the Bible. Everybody loves Matthew 22. Two great commands. Love, that's all we need. No deep doctrine, just love. That's all we need to do to follow Jesus is love. And that's true. But what do we do and when do we, where do we turn when we've miserably failed at loving others and loving God for the tenth time in a day again? We come to know our misery from the law of God because it shows us that our attempts at living before God, our attempts at loving God and loving others, they all fall short. So we need a Savior for that reason, first of all. Secondly, we need a Savior because of our nature. Lord's Day 3, that's the next lesson on the next page, it goes a little deeper. Our failing to love and live rightly is in our nature. It's in our genes. The catechism is really quick to say that God didn't create us with this problem we're born with, but he created us good, and then our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell, and in them we all fall. Their choice caused everyone after them to be born with a sinful nature. It doesn't seem fair, perhaps, but one way people have looked at it they found helpful is to say that any person, no matter who was created first, would have made the same choice. Greg and Sarah in the garden would have made that choice. Mike and Joy, even Ray and Sue Medell. We might like to think we wouldn't, but we would have. We would have, and I think that's absolutely true. Regardless of who you picture in the garden, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve represented all of us when they fell. And so the sin problem, the guilt problem, the misery problem, you see, it's not only in what we do or don't do, but it's in our nature. We're guilty because of our actual sins, Lord's Day 2, and because of what we call original sin, Lord's Day 3. People talk so much about nature and nurture, right? Why are we the way we are? Is it because of how we're raised? Is it our environment? Is it in our genes? Well, if you take what Lord's Day 2 says about our lack of living according to God's law, 
and what Lord's Day 3 says about our nature, we find out that we're corrupt in both ways. We have this discussion today with same-gender attractions. Why do some people have that tendency? Are people born that way? Can they help it or not? Well, the catechism tells us about sin. About sin. Yes, we are born that way. It got embedded in our genetic code. That's how jarring the fall was. And so we shouldn't have any problem whatsoever believing that certain people are born with different tendencies, whether it be an attraction to alcohol that's too strong, a tendency towards being quick to anger, a tendency to be a worry ward or whatever. We are born broken and sinful. Absolutely. The fall has so poisoned our nature that we are corrupt from conception on, is what we read. Born sinners, corrupt from conception on. It's an Anglican bishop named J.C. Ryle from the 1800s. He says, we're like smashed up temples, people born in sin, all of us. There's still a trace of our original splendor because we're creatures made in the image of God, but the temple that was once glorious now has smashed in windows, crumbling columns. We're not what we were. A difference between us and the world is that it says we are perfect temples just the way we are, right? The world says if you're born a certain way, that makes whatever you, do, you are, however you act, okay and fine because you're born that way. The Bible says just because you're born a certain way, that doesn't make it all okay. We're born a certain way, and it makes us guilty before a holy God. And the catechism says in addition to that, we are also guilty when we make sinful choices. We deliberately go against God's law. Our living the way we do also makes us guilty. So much so that we are unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil. We, we're not going to, don't have time to get into this too much, but unable to do any good, that's very, very harsh. What that means is that what the average person says is good and might be good, quote-unquote good, is not really truly good in God's eyes because we have to use his standard, not ours, and his standard is summarized in that Lord's Day too, God's law. And inclined toward all evil, that also sounds very harsh. And it's true, but it doesn't mean we're totally evil if we were totally evil, we would all be mass murderers or something like that. It doesn't mean that, but it means we are totally unable to do any good. Nurture is covered. Nature is covered. Now, the final lesson, Lord's Day 4, points to the fact that we need a Savior also because of the notice that's been delivered by a just God. We're guilty also because of the character of our God. And Lord's Day 4 walks us through how the character of God plays into this. Question answer 9. 
Isn't God being unfair in his strict requirements? No, because he created us good. Number 10, can God let this go? No, he can't let it go. He's a just judge. If you get a speeding ticket because you speed, that's exactly what you deserve. That's justice. And that's the same with sin before God. Number 11, but what about the mercy of God? Yes, God is merciful. God is loving. But his justice, the Bible tells us, needs to be accounted for too. It would go contrary to his character to ignore the demands of his justice. And that's, of course, where the cross of Jesus comes in, right? The reset of the moral order, like my dad talked about it this morning. In the cross, both justice and and mercy are accounted for. And so Jesus is the answer for our guilt situation. So much in this guilt section is tough news. But right in the middle, answer eight, we get the glimmer of hope. In that really harsh thing, are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evils, says question eight? And the answer is yes. But it doesn't stop there. There's hope. Unless we're born again. So there's hope in being born again. There's hope in Jesus. And that's what the Heidelberg Catechism is telling us to lead us to. To Jesus, to faith in him, what that's all about. And that's exactly where the catechism goes next. And we'll see that next time in the section on grace. For tonight, for now, I hope and pray that this impresses on each one of us, that it impresses on you tonight, that you're not okay on your own. You're not okay. In a world and a culture that says, you're fine, you're good on your own, everything's good, and wants to sort of gloss over problems, especially the hard one. The Bible says, no, that's a lie, actually. It's not all good. I'm not all good. In fact, sometimes things are very lousy in the world, in my life, in my heart, in my mind. How can things get better for a person if they gloss over their problems? They will never get better if they ignore their problems. The Heidelberg Catechism, summarizing the Bible, helps us see in this first section right off the bat, that helps us see we've got a problem. There's a root problem to everything being not the way it's supposed to be in this world and in our lives. And that root problem is sin. The catechism right away takes us there. The catechism is honest. The catechism is real. Is it really so bad? Are things that dire? Yes, they are. But it doesn't stop there. There's an unless. Unless we're born again by the Spirit of God. Now there's refreshing news 
in the face of a dire report. Unless we know Jesus and we can know him and we do know him and we love him, unless God steps into the bad situation and he did and he continues to. We're going to move from this message to a little time of worship, uh, confessing our guilt, confessing our need for God, and then turning our hearts together to the one who can and does fill the need, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.